The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So thank you, Jim, for um, introducing me, and thank you, um, Gil, in his absence, for inviting me, and thank you for Jan for bringing me, and Andrea and Victor and many others who've uh, made this possible. Um, I'm very happy to be here uh, for a number of reasons, partly because I've heard, I'd heard and I've read some of Gil's work, and I was always, I've always thought of him as a as a very good teacher, and unfortunately I'm not meeting him today, but uh, I'm meeting his sangha, or, you know, and when you meet the sangha, then you meet the teacher, it's like that. When there was a famous passage when King Prasnajit meets the Buddha, and he sees, when I, see the, when I see the sangha, I see the Buddha. When I see the Dhamma, I see the Buddha. When I see the Buddha, I see the Dhamma, and I see the sangha. So these three jewels of the Dhamma are really interpenetrating all the time. And I think we don't always need the teacher. We f- see the teacher in ourselves through uh, the practice. Uh, the other reason, and, and I'm very happy to be, as Jan was saying, welcome to our temple. This is the, you know, the temple of the Buddha in Redwood City. It's very nice. So, um, but I think the other reason I, I like it very much is because when I came to America for the first time in 1980, uh, I only had two addresses in America. Uh, my brother was here studying at Stanford. Uh, so when I landed in America, the first place I came to was here. And this afternoon I went to Stanford, and I just said, ah. Oh. So it's been 1980 to now it's 2011. It's grown a little older. And I came, you know, I just left my corporate job. I thought, you know, I was a shoemaker at that time, and I just... Uh, had been working with a, with a multinational called Clark's, uh, and I'd been working for them in India, and my hotel bill for one night was more than what the worker earned for six days. So I wrote a little piece of one piece. I've never been good at, very good at writing, but I wrote a, sort of like three paragraphs about you know, people before profits, and I gave it to my managing director, and he said, well, you see, the name of the game here is Profits Before People. Then we look after our people. And it was a very good company. It was a Quaker company, and... So as a young, sort of slightly more hot-headed person than I am today, I thought, you know, I don't want to work in this you know, system. And I was reading a lot of anarchist literature at the time, too, so <laughs> that helped, I guess, in, including Gandhi. Was, so, um, so then I left, and I said, what should I do? And so I thought I'd go and travel, and I came to meet my brother here. So in a way, I came as a sort of hot, you know, slightly... But I couldn't... St- I'd read a little bit about the foreign foreign uh, policy of America at that time. And of course, I didn't distinguish between the foreign policy of America and Americans. So then I thought, you know, that's it. I don't really want to go. My brother's there. I'm going to go to Mexico. So the only two addresses I had was him and, and somebody gave me an address of somebody who in a Hopi uh, mesa. And I had no clue who these Hopi were. I just came. And it turned out to be some chief at some Hopi mesa. So I went Stanford, Hopi mesa 2, and Mexico. But luckily, when I came here, I realized that there was, a, there was a, a distinct difference in the people I met and the perception I had of what America was about through its foreign policy. And so that is a good education for me. I then went back to university, studied development studies, went, did my thesis on Gandhian economics. And then, why I'm telling the story is because then after that, I became a strong activist. And I was really sort of, you know, out there, you know, 
on the streets, you know, organizing protests, going to jail, you know, things like that being uh, sort of a bit of a pest to society, at least established society. And, but I realized that I burnt out. And, and so when I burnt out, I then thought I'd better find a way to be peace rather than just fight for peace. And being brought up in India, I realized that you know, spirituality has some sort of helps in being peaceful. So then I went to many, many teachers in India. And I went to you know, lots of teachers. But somehow, they didn't suit me. Or at that time, they didn't suit me. They were good teachers, but there was either too much guru or too much God, basically. But also, it's a problem, because when you're in your own environment, you don't find the teachers so much. You, know, you, you also have all your social pigeoning hole pigeonholing and things like that, you know, so you can't... So, at that time, I heard there were some very good teachers in the West Coast of America. And we'd been influenced by the West Coast of America a lot, because, you know, when, even though we'd lived through wars in India, the horror of war came about because of the Vietnam War protests and the songs. It wasn't the, that when we lived through the wars and we had to put pieces of paper on our windows, we didn't see the war, we just... But it was that sort of... Uh, the, the effect of... West Coast media, American media, which really brought that horror war in me. So I came to the West Coast of America as a, as a manager of a performing troupe. And I wandered here for 16 months like an Indian hippie, looking for a teacher and looking at different practices, practicing Native American teachings and Sufi teachings. And you know, here you can do everything. It's like what's called smogger's board or whatever. <laughs> you can go around and do, you know, pick things on a salad bar. And slowly, slowly, I started finding that Buddhism suited me more and more. That sort of spirit of free inquiry, you know, a meditative practice, slightly reflective, uh, a degree of self-reliance, not just fatedness, uh, an actual practice to do that, a path to do that. And, um, and so I started practicing Japanese Zen, and then Korean Zen, and then at Vipassana. And then I met this teacher called Thich Nhat Hanh, who at the Ohio Foundation, and he taught me walking meditation, and I really felt I touched peace. Not peace as an idea, as a concept I was fighting for, but really experienced peace at that time. And so then I felt I'd found somebody as a teacher. And so coming back here now, for me, is very much like a pilgrimage, coming back to California, coming back to this part of the world, because the first time I came as a sort of hot-headed guy, then I came as a sort of seeker, and I looked around for 18 months. I was, you know, I lived in some of the best um, real estate of America, in a van, in a redwood forest, the coast. And I went up and down Pacific Highway number one. You know, it's, it's very beautiful, up to Vancouver and down. And, um, but, um, so today when I was having dinner, I was eating avocado and, and what is that called, nachos, you know, so remember, sort of the California diet. But, amazaki and so it's all that. So anyway, I... I but then, so now coming back as a, as a teacher in a way, you know, is sort of 20, 30 years on, is a different m- mode. And so I feel very uh, grateful to this area as being my sort of, as helping me in finding my path and helping me in the practice. What happened after, in 87, when I met Tiknathan, I went back to India, quite satisfied that I'd found a path which I could, you know, and a teacher who I could... Uh, could uh, learn from and model to some degree for the foreseeable future. Well, he's still my teacher, you know, and it's been 20-odd years, and um, 
I've just come out of a retreat yesterday from, you know, we have a center near, Deer, near Escondido, near San Diego. But in 88, he asked me to organize a journey for him to all the Buddhist sites in India. So, I, you know, I did that like a good student. I said, of course. And at the end of the journey, he said, you know, this is a very, this is a practice the Buddha suggested himself. Why don't you um, do this every year as a practice? You know, in the Mahaparinirvana Sutra, the Buddha says, you know, it would be of great benefit to a layman, laywoman, monk or nun to visit the four places associated with his life, whether the Tagata, you know, was born, whether the Tagata was gained enlightenment, where, where he uh, gave his first teachings and where the Tagata, you know, attained Mahaparinirvana or passed away. And those who would, would, would gain great benefit. Now, the Buddha was not in any sense a man of ego, in fact, that was exactly what he was on, on about. But he felt that this journey, a journey of this, would be a good practice. And I think it is right. When I started doing this in 1988, I've carried on every year doing this. And it's really evolved as my own practice, a practice of pilgrimage. It not only teaches you, as the Buddha suggests, humility and forbearance and you know, being able to face um, the unexpected with a, with a reasonably tranquil mind, or at least you can watch your mind when, it's, when you're facing it. But it opens you up to, or lets you touch uh, parts of your, of, your, um, of your consciousness, which are like, often dormant when you go and live in a habituated environment. So when you go to the same place every day and you do your things, there's certain seeds in your consciousness which, get, you know, which are your, what, you, what you live by. But there are certain parts which don't. And so I think going to unfamiliar surroundings, going to places which are of some significance, uh, can have a, a quite a transformative effect if we, if we use the journey as a pilgrimage. Uh, and a pilgrimage, I mean, is an inner journey at the same time as an outer journey. We can, of course, travel anywhere. And, and it's not just, of course, having to travel. You can also have a pilgrim mind. It's like when we talk about sitting mind. You, know, you don't always have to be sitting on a cushion. You can be washing the dishes with sitting mind. You know, it's not, it can be doing it with, with that present moment uh, attentiveness. But pilgrimage as a practice, I think, is one of the very... Um, well, for me, I think it's a wonderful practice, and it's one of the slightly underrated practices in the West. In countries like India, it's a huge practice. I was reading a statistic a few years ago where they said it's out of 160 million people who travel in India. Guess how many travel on pilgrimage? Guess. <laughs> you know. 16 million, 10 percent. Another guess? 50 percent. Yeah, getting closer. Yeah, 150 million. Out of the 160 million people who travel, travel on pilgrimage. That is the main reason why people travel. Now, this is an old tradition, and of course, it's become ritualized and other things like this. But it's a sort of, it's a, it's it's, uh, and people travel in groups. It's not individual travel, people travel uh, so it's really a, a form of practice leaving, leaving the householder's life as the Buddha said, the householder's life is full of dust and you know you should brush that dust off, I don't entirely agree but he, the Buddha was you know, left home himself as a, as a sort of pilgrim when he left home at the age of 29 he tried to find his teachers locally he hadn't found his teachers there was no west coast of America at that time. So he went down to Vaishali and Rajgir, you know, which were the main centers, urban centers at the time. 
looking for teachers. And he did meet teachers. He met the great yogic teachers. He did practices of great concentration, you know, from Alara Kalama. He learned the Upanishads and he, from Udakaramaputta. He did the famous ascetic practices with, you know, with, with uh, which Mahavira, a contemporary of his, who founded the Jain religion, was, was expounding. But all these he found didn't quite, you know, suit him because he found he sometimes got into a trance-like situation, but when he came out of the trance, it was back to square one, like with, with the very deep concentration of, uh, you know, of the yogic practices. And so, and with the ascetic practices, of course, you know, he felt he was suffering even more because, uh, you know, when you don't eat very much, you, he used to describe his body as saying, you know, uh, he could touch his, when he touched his stomach, he touched his backbone, his head was like a shriveled gourd, his buttocks were like the hooves of a horse, he goes on and on. You know, people like talking about their suffering. You know? He was no different. So, but he did go on a bit. His ribs were like rafts of a dilapidated building. His eyes were like sunken wells. You know. Anyway, he tried it all. And luckily, he found that that wasn't quite the path. So then he goes back and he starts, you know, uh, he goes back out of the cave, goes to the river, bathes, you know, because he, no self-respecting ascetic would bathe, of course. You know, dirt would just fall off. Clumps of hair would be plucked off. Uh, even today, the Jens, you know, have friends, have a Jen nun friend, and every year they pluck their hair. You know, it's like, mm. anyway, different strokes for different folks. You know, so, and so it's so. Anyway, he he then um, is heading towards the village, and he collapses. And there's a young girl, about 13, called Sujata, who's taking some rice and milk pudding to the tree gods. And she sees this man dying and sits and offers him a little bit. And he, you know, a little bit of probably just, you know, he moistens his mouth. And then he starts eating a little bit and he sits up. Now, at this time, he's been practicing with five of his fellow ascetics. And um, they see him eating and they think, my God, you know, he's like, he's left the practice. And then he's talking to this young girl, and he's really beyond the pale, you know, so that they, they go off. And he doesn't even notice they've gone, really. So then he, then he goes and he sits with this girl, and he, he talks with her, and then he goes and sits under a tree. Now, the reason I'm telling you part of the story is partly because I'd actually planned to do a slideshow today. But, of course, the, I didn't work out that there, was no, there wasn't a projector or, or et cetera, et cetera. So I was going to tell you the story, but I just... I'm going to weave the story into other stuff. I thought I'd talk a little bit about pilgrimage's practice, a little bit about the life of the Buddha, and uh, also a little bit, uh, I can leave some time for question and answers. So that's what I'm planning to do in case you're wondering why I'm weaving, where I'm weaving to. But, and at any point, if you have a question, please feel free to ask of any sort. Um, is that okay, Jim? That's yes. it? Yes, okay. okay. I don't know if there was a topic. Was there a topic for this evening? <laughs> No? Okay. no? okay. Maybe I should take peace in oneself, peace in the world. See this? Yeah, so, <clears throat> where was I? <laughs> the rice. The rice, oh yeah, under the tree. So then, so then he goes and hangs out under this tree which is a really beautiful tree. It's called the Pipala tree or the Bodhi tree now. And he sits there day after day, night after di- night for about 49 days. And because he's been practicing in any, way, in any case, he feels he's going to break through. 
One of the great things about the Indic civilization, in a way, or the Indic civilization spiritual paths, is that we really have a big confidence that if we do the right path, do the right practices, we will awaken, we will get enlightened, we will get free, we will have nirvana or moksha. It's not dependent on the grace of some other external entity. And this is a great confidence. It's like we all know it. You ask a child in India, or it's really quite inbuilt in our, in our consciousness. If you do the right path, you do the right practices, you can become free. And I think the Buddha felt that at the time also. So he, he practices, and then he slowly, slowly, as he sits under the tree and his mind is calm, he starts looking at a bit like what we were doing with our meditation, looking with present moment awareness, at his breath, at his body, at his emotions and his mind and his objects of mind. And then he says that, because he, well, I'll sort of backtrack a minute for those of you, you're probably quite familiar with the story, but the reason he's left home is because he wanted to find a way out of suffering. Because as we know, you know, when he was brought up as a child, he was brought up in quite a sort of um, privileged way. He was the son of a small king, uh, not a very big king. And, uh, and then, as he was brought up in that way, he uh, felt sort of dissatisfied in some way that the, the politics of the time was more based on, as is still now, on jealousy, on trying to get the position and the seat rather than cooperation. You know, it's happening right now in your Senate and Congress. It's not the politics of cooperation at all. It's just, you know, I want that, whatever it is. And, um, and so, so when he, he leaves home, he leaves home at the, at the age of 29, and his father and mother are quite opposed to it. And, because he's, and so because they want to sort of bind him to the house, they've married him off at 16. You know, married him off means because we, we do get, we have arranged marriages. You know, we do, you don't have much choice in those matters. So he's, he's married at the age of 16. He has this rather good relationship, as far as we know, with his wife, Yashodra. But he leaves soon after a son is born at the age of 29. And in that process, he's, what has happened is that uh, he has uh, seen certain things, which what we call the four heavenly messages in that way, or in, in modern parlance, but he's seen the old man, the sick person, the, you know, the, the dead person, and the monk, the wandering mendicant. And he's seen these images and he feels and he realizes that all of us are of the nature to die, all of us are of the nature to get sick, all of us are of the nature to get old. There's suffering in this world of some sort. How do we get over this? And that's what he really sets out from home to do. And he sees this wandering mendicant, the, the wanderer, the pilgrim, the, you know, the sort of archetypal trap. I mean, it's inside all of us. You know, we all want to know what's around the next corner, what's over the next hill. And it's a way... And he sees that as an image of somebody who, could, who seems a happy person who's, who's living outside of the home life. And so he takes that path and then goes to meet the teachers. Now his wife, I think his wife had pro- probably had an arrangement that he wouldn't leave home till they had a kid. Because it's soon after the kid is born, Rahul, that he leaves. And I also think that he and his wife probably had a good arrangement that he would leave. Because, you know, I can imagine he must have been a bit of a pain in the neck being at home, saying, you know, I want to go and find out this. And so she must have said, you know, like, you know, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. Say, you know, <laughs> off you go. But come back and tell us. Because when his father and mother say, you know, uh, don't go because of us, because we're a child, because you're a wife, he said, I'm going because of you. It's because of you I want to go, because I want to find the way out of this, and I'll come back and tell you. So I don't think it was really leaving home and leaving his wife in this sort of way which we often think of this sort of misogynistic way slightly. 
But it's really, I think, a way of, you know, in, in, in a sort of cooperative way, but to find out the way out of suffering for everyone. Maybe romanticized, but I like it. <laughs> but, and so he, he then goes off, and he sits under this tree, and he starts looking at dukkha, or suffering, like a doctor would. He sees it as a sense of dis-ease, like a disease, a disease, or a sense of ill-being, we call it. And dukkha is really an unsatisfactoriness, a sort of a state of slight unsatisfactoriness. And he starts looking at different aspects of which cause that disease, you know, whether it's um, anger or irritation or not being with people you like or being away from people you love and not getting what you want, besides old age sickness. And he starts looking at these sort of states of mind or situations with, where you, we, we suffer a little bit. I was talking to a young man, not young, my age man, yesterday. He says, you know, all this stuff, he'd come for a talk yesterday. He said, you see, but I don't suffer at all, you see. I don't understand these teachings. I, I'm very happy I don't suffer. So, you know, for, if you're, you have to have a starting point that you, there is suffering. So I said, well, you know, when you drive your car sometimes and somebody cuts you off, do you find a little, oh, yeah, that's a little bit of suffering. So I said, well, you can work from that. You can start from that point. So I think one of the important things in, in the Dhamma is to understand that the starting point for all of us to practice is suffering, the awareness of that suffering. And then, so the Buddha starts like that. And then the second noble truth, as we call it, and we call it noble truth because no, suffering in itself is not a noble truth. It's only a noble truth if you can use it for transformation. Otherwise, it's just plain old suffering. You, know, you might as well stew in it. And, you know. So then the second part is this sort of the cause of it. And in that way, he looks at the cause, as a doctor would, if you, have a medicine, if you have a disease, he'll say, well, what is the cause of this disease? And he starts looking at that, and he says, oh, it's the sort of way we look at things, the, the, our view, our wrong view. We have this idea of an independent I, or we have an idea of, you know, we have a sort of a, a view of things are permanent or things are independent. And this view creates uh, is a cause of uh, much of our suffering. So then he says, oh, okay, so now is there an antidote? So like a good doctor would say, well, is there a medicine? And he says, yes. And he says, yes, there is a medicine. Then he calls that nirodha. And that uh, medicine is, is in a way the good news of Buddhism. Because when we talk in Buddhist terminology, we always say everything's interconnected, interdependent. So this is because that is, and this is not because that is not. So because if there's light, there's darkness. If there's an absence of light, there's an absence of darkness. You know, if there's a, there's a very nice example that Thich was giving a few days ago. He was saying, well, you see, you look at this, you take the left and the right, and say you're on the left politically, you see? So you don't want too much of the right. But if you cut off the right, then you don't have the left. You can't be the left. So it's like the left and the right are dependent, are co-dependent. The above and below are co-dependent. So it's the same with this. So if you remove suffering, if you remove ill-being, if you remove disease, then you get happiness and joy. So the practice of Dhamma, the practice of Buddhism, is really the practice of joy and, and, and happiness. It's not just getting rid of suffering. And I think that is what is, in a way, emphasized a little more in Mahayana, uh, but it is really what I feel the Buddha was trying to teach. Because the Buddha was not a... He was smiling. You see, this, that's why this... And I said, smile. I mean, you can do smile because... 
I mean, actually, smiling is an interesting thing to do because even if you don't feel, if you're very grumpy and smile, you do this. You know, you call it the yoga of smiling. It has, it has, you have about 300 muscles in your face, you know, and it has a neurological effect on your, on your, on your brain if you, if you do that. See? You feel better immediately. So, so anyway, and, and I think the Buddha was a smiling guy. You know, you see these nice pictures, uh, uh, statues of the Buddha, you ever go to buy a statue of the Buddha, always look at the smile. You know, that's, um, so anyway, so I think uh, that's why I feel that the Buddha was a happy person. It was a, a joyful person who enjoyed the sunset. As he tells Ananda, let's go and watch the sunset on Vulture Peak. You know, let's take a walk along these, these rice fields. You know, is that sort of, he's, he's enjoying the moment and the beauty of, of this landscape, the mustard fields and things. And then he says, okay, so then he says, well, how do you, what is the medicine? to get over the suffering, if there is an antidote. What is the medicine? And then he lays it out, his eightfold path. You know? And that's what it is, you know, whether it's the right type of action, whether it's a body or speech or mind, or whether it's right livelihood or the right effort or diligence and so on and so forth, or mindfulness and concentration and view. So that is, in a way, what the Buddha teaches. And I think, and then after that, for the next 45 years, he just does that. Every day or every few days he travels, except for the rain retreat, and he teaches. Breathing in, breathing out, present moment awareness, eightfold path, da, 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 you know, shila, samadhi, prajna, you know, concentrate well, mindfulness or precepts, concentration and insight. That's what he teaches. For forty five years out of great compassion. You know, can you imagine somebody going on and on saying the same thing and you just don't get it? It happens to all of us, you know. We sit, sit there, you know, 20 years down the line, we're sitting listening to a teacher and say, wow, that sounds good. But we've been hearing it for 20 years, just don't practice it, you know. So his thing is just practice, practice, practice. Even that little practice I did with the, with the, with the body, you know, it seems a very simple practice. But it's like, until we get an SOS from our heart, we don't think about our heart. You know, we don't send love to our heart and say, thank you, Mr. Heart or Ms. Heart. You know, you've been beating like this since I was born, or before I was born. I was in my mama's tum-tum. I was still beating, you know, and still, um, thank you so much. And if we appreciate it and look at it like that, now it's being proved, you know, medically. I was with somebody, I don't know if he came, Jim Doty, did he come? Yeah, he's one of the neuroscientists in, the, in Stanford. He was saying today how, you know, this stuff is very, is proven now, how mindfulness meditation or attentiveness to different parts of the body will it actually has a physiological effect. It's, it's now being even recommended by the National Health Service in England as a way of healing. So these are, may seem, seem very simple exercises, but they're very, very powerful. Just looking at saying, hello, heart, thank you. Hello, lungs, thank you. And, you know, and because there was a very nice uh, example, again, which Nathan said some years ago. He said, you know, what is it? Celebrate your non-toothache. <laughs> you know? Like when I had a toothache, my God, you really want to get to the dentist as far as you can. But right now, I don't have a toothache. So, so I think, so that's what he really provides. He provides a template of practice to, look over, to get over our suffering and to attain liberation. And he does this for a long time. And then when he's about um, 80 years old, he's lying down in Kushinagar, and, where he lies, and he's, there's a whole lot of people there. And he says, is there anything unclear 
about the teachings to overcome suffering and attaining liberation. And there's silence. And that means the teachings are well understood. But out of the compassion, he says, he says it again. He said, if you're feeling embarrassed, ask your neighbor to ask. Is there anything unclear about the teachings to overcome suffering and attaining liberation? And again, there's silence. And maybe there's a little bit of this, you know, like Indian style. You know. But there's no... I don't know if any of you have been to India, you know this. But, and then the third time he says, you know, don't say later that your teacher was there and you didn't ask. You know, is there anything unclear about the teachings to overcome suffering and attaining liberation? And again, there's silence. And that means the teachings are well understood. You know, he didn't teach with a closed fist. He taught like this. He wanted to help everyone. So, and then he closes his eyes. And then he opens them once again and he says, all conditioned reality is subject to decay. Strive on diligently. Which basically means that everything is impermanent and keep up the practice. And then he closes his eyes. And that teaching has now been resonating for 2,500 years, 2,600 years, through the different countries from India, got lost in India, you know, d- disappeared in India, reappeared all over the place. And I sometimes, when I go to the Bodhi tree, I think of the Bodhi tree like a good symbol of, of, the, of the Dhamma. You go to the Bodhi tree, the original tree is lost, like in Buddhism in India is lost, and it's reviving to some extent. So they're replacing that tree. But you get big, thick trunks, you know, maybe Buddhism in Thailand or Buddhism in Vietnam. And then you get some little branches, you know, like Buddhism in America, and then Buddhism in California. This is another country, I guess. <laughs> and, and, so, and it's how we nurture that, that how we nurture those br- little twigs and branches, how Buddhism will develop. And when you go to Bodh Gaya, for example, you go and see all these Buddhist temples. And they, you, know, you go to the Thai temple, the Buddha looks like a Thai. There he is, looking quite... And then you go to the Japanese temple, and it looks like Japanese. And you go to you know, the Burmese temple, it looks like a Burmese. So we're waiting for the American temple, and maybe, I don't know, I don't know maybe a model there, you can, uh, maybe a woman. So it could be somebody, you know, maybe a, you know, what do you say, like a square jaw, um, maybe wearing jeans or blue denim, I don't know. But, but I think we have to create our own Buddhas who are relevant to our own time and our own uh, uh, mind who can help us. And we don't need to create those Buddhas outside, they're just aids. Really, the Buddha nature is within us. We have to awaken that. And that's what the whole practice is. It's how to do that, how to build our awakening in ourselves, and how to build a Sangha. Because the Sangha is really our, our Buddha body. How we can help each other, how we reflect each other. And um, so I guess what I've been trying to do over the last 20-odd years of the practice of pilgrimage is really taking people on these journeys, and I'm very grateful that some of these friends have come here. I think it's a journey of transformation. It's a journey which has transformed me, but I think in many cases it has transformed many other people. And there's so many, so many instances. I mean, it's just one after the other. Because the way we try and do the journey is not only to meet the historical Buddha, which is important enough, because the Buddha is not a god. The Buddha is a human being. That is very, very clear. Siddhartha Gautama Buddha, he was a human being. And I think for me, that's very, very important. Otherwise, his teachings become a little irrelevant to me. And then, not only to meet the historical Buddha, but then to meet the people he met. Because in, in many ways, India hasn't changed in some ways. I and mean, the cave where he sat and breathed is still there. The river where he crossed is still there. In fact, 
the, the rice fields and the way they are plowed by the bullocks is still there. When he had his first meditation when he was nine, when, when his father was plowing the land, it's still there. This sort of, the girl Sujata, there's a girl called Sujata, 13, in one of my slides, which you can probably see. <laughs> She's there. You can meet her. So it's interesting that you don't see the Buddha only as a historical character, but you see him now. I was talking to Bob before coming, and I was saying on one of the journeys from the airport to our first destination in Rajgir, I saw a dead person, an old person, a sick person, and a monk. Within an hour. It's still happening. Things ain't changing too fast. You know, but they, they change. But so, so that's how the whole teaching is evolving, that you don't have to see the Buddha only as a historical character. You see him in a relevant way today. You meet the people he met historically, and then you see the Buddha today. And ideally, you see the Buddha in yourself. So when you sit under the Bodhi tree, it's not because the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, because you are sitting under the Bodhi tree, and then you don't need to sit under the Bodhi tree at all. You can come and, you know, your, I don't know, your plane tree or lime tree or oak tree, whatever you have here, your copper birch, you, you sit under that. That can be your, your Bodhi tree. So I think what I'm trying to do in these pilgrimages is to really help that inner journey develop. But it helps a lot to go to these sacred places because there is an, a sort of energy that has developed out of a lot of people's intention to go to these places. And also we tra- try and travel in a, in a sangha. In a sort of, it's much more powerful to go as a group than to go individually to these places because you can create a practice space together. And slowly, slowly over the f- days, we, we bookend the day in a way. We, uh, we, we always start with a sitting practice in the morning and we end the day with a discussion, a dharma discussion or a discussion of what struck us that day. And that starts helping us to travel more like an organism than just an organization of individuals. And that's very powerful because we have the same experience, but we see things with different perceptions. And so we have a different perception of the same thing. So you start realizing that yours is not the only way, of course, but you also learn from the others. So everyone becomes a co-teacher or a co-learner. And slowly, slowly, those issues where we, in the first days, people say, oh, sometimes people are struck by the poverty or uh, you know, the sort of sometimes the unsanitary conditions. But, you know, you look at them and you go through it and you touch the wisdom and the beauty. You have to go through it. You have to go beyond that. And slowly what we see is the outer suffering. We have to start reflecting on our own suffering, our suffering of our own society, suffering of our own family. And so then we start looking at those and how to transform those seeds. And I remember one story where there's a woman sitting there at Sarnath where the Buddha gave his first teachings. She was from L.A., and she was a lawyer, and, uh, and she was crying. And a woman who was cutting grass with a torn sari, you know, sari is the, the type of dress we wear, uh, women wear, she zooms across this, this park and puts her arm around this lady and says, you know, why are you crying? You know, we have nothing and we are happy. You have everything. And this one little thing just changed her life. She came back and made quite drastic changes in her life and, and just was is, is a, I met her recently a really happy woman and just that one little thing and there were many instances like this happened all the time you know all the time I mean Bob was talking about a few and Pat was talking and you know Jan and Stephen we, anybody else who's here who's come on a journey yeah I think okay so we just we were just talking about a dinner you know how many instances and memories and images and those carry on because the journey really doesn't end in India at all. The journey, in fact, begins in some way when you get home, when you see your familiar surroundings with these slightly different eyes. 
And then you see, okay, can I make this change? Is this making me happy or is this frustrating me? And that's how really what the journey is about, is how we can shift our lens and see our own life in a different way. And for me, and I have a slightly naughty uh, agenda also in this, which is that, <laughs> well, because of my little political background, I've discovered and I've, I've, been, fi- I've been working in, in social development, as Jim was saying, for many, many years in you know, hundreds of villages across South Asia, and then I worked in 16 countries and ran a global program over Africa, Asia, Latin America. And I found working at a grassroots level is very important, but really we have to shift consciousness at a collective level. And the people who can shift consciousness the best today are the West and the opinion makers of the West. And it's really, a lot of it is in the West Coast. I think it could be, I mean, it's also East Coast and England and France, etc. But a lot of, you know, Google's here. Google's shifting consciousness, you know, I mean, the ability to change things. And so um, I'm very interested in taking opinion makers, people who are working in the West, to shift their way to look at how there's another economic, social, political system where people have very light foot, you know, ecological footprint on the earth. I call it the cow economy, things like that, so that they can make slightly more informed decisions when they think about an ecologically sustainable model of development. So they look at, you know, it's not just a high-tech solution. And uh, I got this idea from a man who took 70 senators to the rainforest. And now whenever they make a decision about the rainforest, they have something, they can't be totally false to themselves. And, and I learned this by when I found that things like yoga, for example, we've been doing yoga for, you know, as far as we know, 5,000 years. And I was teaching yoga in the early 80s, and I used to go to meetings, and there were like, you know, threadbare uh, rugs on the ground. But after Jane Fonda took it up, and, you know, staying, and suddenly, you know, in India, the middle class, and people, like, suddenly, you know, everyone's got their yoga instructor, the elite in India doing yoga, now it's becoming introduced to schools, it's, it's, you know, it's kosher to have it in schools, it's in part of the curriculum for children. It wasn't because we did it in India, it came, because of, came here, came from here. Same with sitar, you know, there are probably more sarangi players in India than sitar players, but nobody's heard of the sarangi. But it's because Ravi Shankar plays George Harrison, so everyone knows the sitar, you know. And Ayurveda, Ayurveda is, if you want universal med- medical health care in India, you, every kitchen becomes a pharmacy. Has to be, it's always been a pharmacy. The kitchen has been the pharmacy in India. The Ayurvedic cures are based in the kitchen. It was in the West, too. You know, it wasn't the, the white pill you got from the white coat. But it's going to come from the West. When Ayurveda was dying in India, and suddenly, because the West is interested in Ayurveda, now suddenly there's some research going on, people are going into you know, spas and doing stuff. So I think that's sort of my little naughty model. You know, I'm thinking that I also am interested in political and social change in India, not just in India, in the West also. I'm, I'm interested that uh, we have a, a happier and more peaceful and sustainable world. And so we are one world, you know, one little world. And if we can live in harmony and understand each other better through the Dhamma or through whatever means it is. Um, and I think my vehicle for doing this is my own practice, building a Sangha, uh, sharing this at schools, and really trying to organize and lead transformative journeys. And not just in the Buddhist path now, we're doing journeys which are, you know, when we go to the Taj Mahal, we talk about love and how can we develop love in our relationships at home with our family. It's, you know, the Taj Mahal is very beautiful. It's got its, you know, the Mughal architecture and the artisanship. But what is the message? So I think all journeys, if they have to have really a, a 
value. They should have a transformative effect inside. Anyway, I think I've spoken quite a lot. More than, I had no idea what I was, without my slides, I was telling Jan, what should I speak about? But anyway, I think, uh, I don't know if you have time for a few questions. Or, yeah. you know, okay, so please, uh, you're, I'm open to any questions if you'd like any. Maybe you could tell us something of what you're doing with the schools and the children. Mm. Let me see if my bag of tricks is here. Yeah. So we just produced a book, which is called Planting Seeds. Um, just on the forward to it, and one of the nuns in Tiknathan's communities put t- together this, put this together. Uh, what we're doing, we've been working with children in our communities for about 30 years in what is called the summer retreat in Plum Village, which is Diknathan's center. And we've been developing different types of ideas and different games and songs and, you know, in a very secular way, not in a very Buddhist way sometimes. I mean, not, not, not using Buddhist language. So um, it's like pebble meditation or you know, seeing ourselves as a flower and being as fresh as a flower or seeing ourselves as a mountain developing solidity and then doing hand gestures with songs. So what we're doing really is trying to introduce what I call mindfulness in schools, practices of mindfulness. So it could be walking, it could be uh, developing attentiveness, developing concentration, it could be about uh, understanding our emotions, you know, naming our emotions and understanding how, what these emotions are and then transforming them, giving tools of transformation. And I never learned how to handle my anger or jealousy in school. And I think it's, and it's no rocket science. I mean, that's why we're here. We are Dhamma practitioners because we want to change our, our mind and our emotions and understand these and overcome you know, our afflictive emotions. So that's what we're doing with kids. And, we're, and we've been doing this now in different ways. We, have, we started by... I started by actually, interestingly enough, in the American Embassy School. I did a 10-week session with them, with the teachers. Uh, well, actually, I first started with, with a school which is like a, a fancy sort of boarding school and the principal said, my, my girl, there's a board, girls' boarding school, and they said, she said, my, my children are very stressed out for their exams. So I just taught them very basic breathing exercises and walking meditation. And it seemed to help a lot. And then the American Embassy School teacher said, the director said, his teachers are stressed out. So can you teach them? It's not the kids. So then I told the, and that's been going on for more than 10 years. They have a little sangha, a small sangha in a community in their, in their school. Every Tuesday evening they meet, and they share what they've been doing. They've introduced the bell like this. They've done many, many different... We have lots of things like playing with sand, water, looking at the mind in different ways. And then we had this big conference about 550 principals and deputy heads from all over India. And now we follow it up. With, we've got about 130 schools involved, but five schools we're taking as, as model schools because we're trying to build advocacy from within the school system. And um, so, in fact, I'd like a lot more collaboration worldwide. In fact, we're collaborating with some people in England, some people in America. In fact, two or three years ago, uh, my friend Gerard and Regina actually uh, organized a meeting to meet somebody called Linda Hammond-Darling here, who's involved with education at Stanford. Um, and, you know, we are still, it's all, a, a pro, we're all learning how to bring this into schools. 
people in America, there's, there are different groups trying to do this in Oakland. So it's, we're all learning together. It hasn't happened. And yet, when you look at Indian education, before the British came, our education was based upon self-development and self-realization. That's the basis of what education was in India. It is about conquering your own nature. It wasn't so much about conquering nature outside. But the dominant model of education, is because we were colonized by the British, became that. So now we're having to sort of unlearn all that stuff. And that's why it's important if, when we find that the research being done in the West on neuroplasticity or you know, epigenetics, it's all advantageous to us now to bring it back to India. Otherwise, so that's a little bit. So is that too much? Okay. Sorry, yes. Along those same lines, did you, I, I'm wondering um, how much resistance there is, like, for example, from the parents who, who don't really understand. Because I'm actually just beginning to get involved in exactly what you're talking about. And I work in education myself, so I've been kind of talking it over with people. And they say, well, you know, San Mateo County would be very difficult to bring this kind of a program into the schools because they're so conservative. There might be a lot of resistance from the parents and that kind of thing. I mean, what did you do when you run into that? You know, we try and involve everyone as much as we can. You know, we get resistance. Actually, sometimes you're right. The resistance comes from odd sources, you know. So what we do is when when we organize these, these workshops and things in the schools, we say, you must bring the administrator, the accounts person, very important, the guard at the door. Bring them in also. Bring the parents in. Let them come in and see what we're trying to do. Because the school is a community. In fact, the school is a second chance. Many, many families are dysfunctional now, even in India, you know, because of the sort of urbanization which we're experiencing. So it's more like you get, you get resistance. You get resistance. Say, oh, this is religious stuff. You know, we don't want Buddhism. You say, you know, this is... We secularize it. We don't use the B word too much. But it's okay, you know. <laughs> We use the M word, you know, mindfulness, mind training. We use you know, mental training. We say physical training, you do mental training. So when we get opposition, we sit with people, try and explain to them that what is the basis of life, I mean, basis of education. And people start with always, they say, you know, the basis of education or the function of education is to, is to get into school education to get to a good university and to get a good job. Uh, is that it? I mean, is it to, not to make more happy and peaceful kids? And very quickly they say, yeah, that's, that's what it is, you know. And then you say, what is the technology of happiness or peacefulness? You know, so, so I, I think it's, it's more a matter of, it's the fear people have of something new. It's, but when you talk to them, it's fine. And everyone's looking for it. Everyone's looking for love, you know, and how to develop a relationship with their husband or wife or kids. I mean, look at the communication. We have everything from, uh, somebody just gave me an iPad, you know, it's very nice. But, you know, it doesn't help me if I can't have understanding of my kids or my wife and what her aspiration and suffering is. And I'll have two telephones and, you know, I don't know, something else, you know, Skype and everything. But it doesn't help with, without, uh, you know, understanding and, and developing love. So, and it's not difficult, you see. And like, what's interesting in the Buddhist community is that for 2,500 years, we've been practicing how to build harmony in the community. And we can use some of those techniques... In secular life. That's what I do with my wife. I do a process called beginning anew. You know? 
I mean, I don't think it's the, the best marriage. We have a happy marriage. But, you know, it's, I mean, we, 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 marriage is a practice. You know, living with oneself is a practice. Living with somebody else is, you know, double practice. Living with kids is like you know, four-time practice. <laughs> I've got kids, you know, so I've got parents. You know, I live, uh, brothers, sisters, you know. Yeah. Gerard knows my brother. It's another big practice, you know. So these are all practices. So it's about how to, and we do things like flower watering, you know. I don't know about, flo- you know, flower watering. You know, all of us have a flower inside us, you know, but it gets a bit droopy sometimes. So you have to water the other one's flower, you know. If you're a husband or wife, you just, you, we sit together, and my wife and I sit together, with, we put a flower between us like this, you know, and say, to help us be fresh, and we take the flower like a talking stick. You know, you have this talking stick thing in Native American stuff. And, and you hold it, and, you, and I say, you'll say things which are very practical, not just, you're a beautiful woman, you're a nice mother, but you know, that day, um, you cooked me a really nice meal, or you know, I was, uh, yeah, so you, you can say something very practical. And the second part of the beginning a new process is to share your own regrets. You might have said something or done something which was unskillful, you know. And you can also say where you're at. You may be having some other difficulties. And the third part is that then you share your difficulties. And I call that, you know, um, softening the thorns. So you always, you think of two or three nice things first, you build, so you're coming out of a voice of compassion. Say, you know, we're living together to live in harmony and peace. But I don't understand why you did that. You know, it really hurt me. But you, you don't try and justify. The other person doesn't justify that the, the, the talking flower is with me, you know. And I can just say what I want to say. Even if, I, even if the other person thinks that I'm having a wrong perception, I got completely something, she or he won't interrupt me. So part of the healing is, the, is, the, is, is the being able to be recognized, to speak. So these techniques have been going on in the Buddhist circle for 2,500 years. I mean, it's the most successful organization in the world. I, when, I, when I talk to the corporate sector, I, I, call, I, I say the Buddha is the most successful CEO. You know, he, managed, he started an organization 2,500 years ago, and it, it captured the whole eastern market. It's captured the, <laughs> capturing the western market, west coast. Is, you know, like, here we are, you know, you wouldn't think... You know, 200 years ago, that we'd be sitting in a room like this talking Buddha Dharma in Redwood City, you know. But it's, it's happening. So he's getting this market too, you know. So in, if you think in a corporate way, and why has it happened? Because he has a successful model. Yeah. So I'm going to take a break for my breath, but I'm going to get Bob, if he's not sleeping yet, or somebody else to share a little bit about our journey. Because part of what I'm supposed to do is also encourage you to come on a pilgrimage to India. That's part of my shtick, or whatever they call it. (laughs) And and these friends have been, and it'll give me a few breathing moments. Well, briefly, I've been fortunate in my life to be able to uh, travel quite a bit and take many journeys. But I must honestly tell you, Shantan, the journey that we took together has stayed with me more than any of the journeys that I've taken. And it's with me today. And I say thank you for that. I went as a non-Buddhist, by the way. And I went as an accommodation for my wife. And uh, it's difficult to say that it transformed me, but it had uh, had a tremendous effect. It was... uh, not only the way you showed us the country and the history, uh, but Buddha's path also. It, it became very important. And as I said, it's still with me today, many years later, uh, stronger than any of my other journeys. I would certainly encourage 
anyone that's interested uh, to look into it and, and consider going with you. It's a real treasure. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't pay him for that, huh? <laughs> No, but it's, you know, I was thinking, actually, I, I talked to Gil, before, I, I wrote to Gil, I said, why don't you come, we'll do a journey together, because I like doing that. I think it's very nice for a Sangha to do it together. It really strengthens the Sangha. And um, he said, I've got kids right now, but I'd love to do it sometime, but he's got young kids. So today I was plotting, I was thinking, oh, maybe we should do a kiddie, you know, grown up, like a family thing. But anyway, I think it's nice as a Sangha to come and people to come. And, and the way I've done it also is that when Sanghas come, we just make it, uh, like the price of it or the time of it, we suit the Sangha. The Sangha says, I want so many days and so much price, and we just make it happen. If there are 15 people in the Sangha. And I think some of my best trips are the ones which I'd like to... Well, I can't say but They're all very nice. It's just, I, I think for the Sangha, it really is, a, is something which cements you for a long time as practitioners. It's because you have a Sangha here. But, you know, uh, but I know that Jan and... Stephen and Pat and Bob and Bernice are in the same sangha, but they came at different times. But it's, again, for me, it's my pilgrimage sangha. It doesn't feel like they're any separate. Uh, and there's a connection through the years. Um, and you want to say something, Pat or Stephen or Jan? Or? Oh, we end? Okay, we're time. Okay, we can end. Yeah, what, yeah, what I did was, I, you know, where there's a table outside, so I put these things there. So please take one if you'd like one. You don't have to take it if you don't want to. And, and I've also started a new brand called Eleven Directions, because, uh, but that's, uh, another, that's other journeys besides the Buddhist journeys. And uh, so bu- that's Buddha path. And I also actually brought some posters, um, these, because this is my favorite statue in the world. And if anybody would like one, but to put up in a, you know, I'm thinking about it in the kitchen, but if you want to put it in a, in a bakery or a Starbucks is better. But, but anyway, if you'd like one, these, I have a few of these, you can, you'd like one, you can just come and take one. And uh, so I think that's, uh, yeah, you close that. Should we end with the bell? Or how do you end normally? Okay. Well, I like to end, just with, I just invite the bell once, and then we can. Yeah, can we just invite the bell and just follow our breath, just for uh, three rings, three invitations of the bell? Is that okay?